Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. <laughs> Animals don't want a car, a paycheck, a bigger house, or they, they don't have egos like us. Animals want one thing, they, they want to live. And we as a species continually take that away from them. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome back. I hope you're doing well. I certainly am enjoying the summer here in Southern California. It has been epic. I hope you're having a good time as well and getting some time off and enjoying family and whatnot. I have a super, super cool guest today, Damien Mander. This is going to be a fantastic discussion, so just stand by. We're going to talk about some things completely new and um, near and dear to my heart, so you're going to love it. But uh, before I get into that, as usual, I got a few announcements and things to chat about. First, uh, we have our Unbeatable Mind Summit coming up the first weekend in December, actually November 30th to December 2nd. This is the sixth time we run this event. It really is an epic, epic experience. Lots of Unbeatable Mind training, lots of great speakers, tons of, of really cool you know, things that we're going to do to try to crack you wide open for 2019, including developing your new five mountain training plan and getting clear on your ethos so that you can kick ass and take names next year. So if you want to do that, we have a, a, a final kind of sale push on um, discounted I don't like that word discounted, but lower price, early bird, you know, catch the worm tickets. So check that out at retreat.unbeatablemind.com, retreat.unbeatablemind.com. Also, you may have already heard me say this, but I'm super stoked about the fifth anniversary edition of my book, The Way of the Seal. The publisher was cool enough to ask to do another edition, and we added two chapters, one on leading in accelerating times a VUCA environment, which is something that my guest knows a lot about, and also a chapter on building elite teams, something else he knows a lot about. So we'll probably talk about some of that stuff today. So check that out. It's available at Amazon and paperback. Uh, every, the whole book has been updated, some new stories, um, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of the language, not a lot, but some of the language has changed. But anyways, it's better. The first book was great. But this is even better. So if you haven't gotten it or you want to check out those two new chapters, there's also key takeaways for all the different principles. Go check it out. The book is even more relevant today than it was five years ago when I wrote it. And of course, Burpees for Vets. We are halfway almost to our goal of doing 22 million burpees this year for veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. We've got to help these guys and gals. There's 22 a day on average committing suicide. I mean, that makes me sad every time I even say that. We have to help them out. So we're, um, we've gotten a team together. It's, you know, a couple hundred folks have committed to doing 22 million bur burpees in total. Uh, we're doing it. I'm, I'm doing it essentially by committing to 100,000. So a bunch of us have chosen a number like that. So I'm doing 100,000 this year and donating 10 cents a burpee. So you can join my team. You can pledge me or you can create your own team. You can do it like as a CrossFit box, as many burpees you can do in 24 hours. 
stuff like that. So my friend Boomer, who's an Unbeatable Mind coach, did 4,700 burpees on his 47th birthday, raised $5,000. So there's a couple of ways you can kind of help out here and have fun with this and suffer a little bit for those who are suffered for us. Okay, burpeesforvets.com, help us out. So my guest today, let's get to the meat of the matter here. Damien Mander, a former Australian special operator, naval, naval clearance diver. I actually worked with those guys back in 93. What a solid group of operators. He's an Iraq war vet. He ran a special uh, police training academy in Baghdad to work and prepare or to develop, you know, Iraqis, uh, special ops and paramilitary forces. But most interestingly, what we're going to talk a lot about today is he's the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. And if, you know, unless you've had your head up your ass, poaching is a, another really insidious, just disgusting thing that goes on in our world. I'm sure there's economics behind it that, that you know, probably makes sense to some people. But, you know, we're going to learn from Damien just what kind of uh, impact poaching has on some of the local economies in Africa and also on the biosphere and the wildlife population. It is really, really pathetic. And we got to stop that too. And guess what? Damien is doing that. And we're going to learn about him and why and, you know, what that's all about in a moment. So at any rate, Damien's coming to us. Uh, he's right now in Washington, D.C., probably raising some money or doing something cool. Uh, Damien, thanks for joining us today. Super cool to meet you. Mark, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing outstanding, man. I feel like we met, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. When were you in, with the clearance diving unit down in Australia? Uh, I joined in 2009, mate. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I guess that was a little before your time then. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Maybe in, an, in another life, though. Who knows? Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So, you know, Unbeatable Mind, we, we are all about, you know, our own commitment to making ourselves better and making the world better in the process. And so that's why we, I love talking to people like you and introducing you to our tribe. And we always like to just kind of like figure out what made you like, what were the, what's the man behind what you do today? Like what were your early influences? How did you grow up? What was life like, you know, for you as a young man in Australia? You know, so give us some, yeah. some of the early stuff before we get into some of the later stuff. I used to get up very early before school and uh, I would I'd ride my bike down to the local pier and I would go free diving and collect all the all the fishing lures that had been lost by the calamari fishermen overnight and uh, I'd come back up and I'd sell them and huh. uh, you know did this before school and after school built up this little empire of shopping trolleys and and birthing horses underwater there to catch the lures and uh, that got me into <laughs> that got me into diving and then That's cool. eventually wanted to, jo to join the Navy and, and take it further. And, you know, I was happy doing my job as a diver in the Navy. And then uh, then September 11 happened. It sort of changed the world for, for a lot of people. Tell uh, us about the clearance diving before you go on. Yeah. Uh, to, so what is that job like? I mean, you're are you clearing mines and, and – um so we demolition or what? What are you doing? We'll do a. We do a. a I worked with the U.S. divers uh, who, who seem to specialize in, in one particular field, and we get rotated through the different disciplines every couple of years. So we, you know, sort of mm -hmm. jack of all trades, master of none. But we do uh, underwater battle damage repair. So with your your version of salvage diving, uh, MPM, right. so mine countermeasures, maritime mm -hmm. tactical operations, surface and underwater EOD. And uh, and then after the tactical assault was uh, assault group was formed in in uh, I think it was two thousand two thousand and two counterterrorism, right? 
So that wasn't was that part of the Navy, the tag, or was that like a our version of our tier one? Yeah, that's under uh, the Second Commando Special Operations. Okay, yeah. so you applied for that, and uh, is the training for that kind of like CAG or DevGrew is? Yeah, I, I, I don't know what those uh, what those are. Sorry, man, but um, yeah, they put us through our paces. Hey, you know, we went through we went through hell to get onto uh, onto the dive teams, and then uh, you know had to go and do it all again. But uh, you know, this time we were, we were coming into a, into an army environment, and uh, you know, you know, army guys they don't, they don't like sailors hanging around in their in their place. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. You know, they, I think they get upset, you know, because we always get the nice places on the harbour to hang out and, you know, skipping down the wharf with a, with a cold beer and then stuck out in the bush. So I understand where they're coming from. But uh, needless to say that they, uh, they weren't, weren't too kind in the beginning, but uh, we all became buddies in the end. How many Navy guys went to the tag from your unit? Not many, hey. So we had, we had a water troop which was made up of uh, a very small team, uh, and then I went across to snipers. Uh, so when I was online uh, as a sniper, I was one of only two qualified naval special operations snipers who were online at the time in the, in the Defense Force. No kidding. So tell us a little bit about your experiences in Iraq, some of the interesting things that you did and lessons you learned there. Yeah, I mean – Iraq's a tough one, hey. You know, it's, you know, when you're down there at ground level, it's hard to come up and see things from thirty thousand feet and, and see the big mm-hmm. picture. And you know, interesting to hear you talking about suicide and, and that there before, and, and how a lot of veterans, uh, you know, for a lot of a lot of us guys, the real war doesn't start until the bullets stop, and you're trying to figure out your relevance in in in, in life. And, and you, I mean, you come from a world where you mean everything to, to everyone around you, and then all of a sudden, you, it sort of feels like you're by yourself. And it's no right. job for a sniper in the local newspaper when you come back home. And, uh, and I suppose reflection of why we go to war in the first place and what that war is about is, is part of that process. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's tough. I, I suppose the thing that, that hit me the hardest about Iraq was seeing what happened to the Iraqi people and uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just general, just, you know, I mean, a country that was flattened, man. And, uh, you know, there wasn't, you know, I made a, a strong effort there to learn Arabic and embed myself with the culture and, and that served me very well over there in terms of promotion and, and the various roles that I took up. But when you when you learn their culture, you break bread with them and when you're breaking bread, you, you become part of their family and their household and there wasn't one person there that wasn't directly affected. When I say directly affected, you know, someone's kid who wasn't missing an arm from a, a bit of shrapnel or a wife that hadn't been killed or, or a grandmother that, uh, you know, had copped a stray bullet. So, it, yeah, it was... Um, you know, and I worked a lot in the private sector over there, as well as with the with the U.S. military um, attached as, as, as some of the contracts that I was on. You know, and it's, you know, there's, there's like a handful of different wars going on over there on the yeah. ground, and um, it's hard to know which bullet's got whose name on it. I know, no kidding. You know, this is I, I've never really talked about this on this podcast, but I think it'd be interesting right now since you bring it up. Um, I mean, warriors. I was in Iraq. I wasn't, you know, in a fighting unit. I was a little bit, you know, too senior for that. And so I was more in a garrison, you know, JOTC kind of thing or just sort of, but I was there and I had time to reflect just like you. And, you know, I've been deep into yoga and the martial arts for many years. And the more, you know, senior I got and after, after going to combat zone, you know, my, my opinions on war have just really and combat and war have really changed. Yeah. And I, I think warriors, like true warriors, end up abhorring war and will do anything possible. Yeah. Anything possible. Yeah. To uh, to avoid conflict, to, you know, work through things, to to learn, you know, how to communicate and see other people's perspectives. And yet those people who, you know, and this is no big, you know, 
like breakthrough observation, but we're still compelled to serve, you know, and, and to do our duty, but we abhor that war. And it's just, it's just horrific. And it sounds like you had that same experience, like the cost of war on the civilian population and economies and, and, and just, you know, human spirituality and, and the heart is just devastating, you know, it's devastating. Stuff, stuff for everyone. Yeah. yeah. A lot of I, I like the fact that, you're, you know, like I'm doing, I'm trying to educate, you know, warriors to come at it from a, uh, you know, make better decisions, world centric decisions. And I'm trying to educate people to, you know, connect with their hearts and, and to connect with others, and not be so separated. Right. And I think, the, you know, more and more people who begin to experience life that way, like, you know, like authentic warriors do then I think, you know, we can make a change, but it'll, it'll take time. Yeah. One last thing I want to share with my tribe and you, this is kind of interesting, but I was listening to a, an interview between Deepak Chopra and this guy named Sat Guru, who's a yogi, really f- fascinating, funny guy. And the, the guest said, hey, wh- you know, what, do you, what would you guys do about, you know, the immigration crisis or migration crisis from, you know, war-torn regions like Syria, Yemen? And of course, Deepak, she said, would you, you know, be compassionate or would you, you know, take the more, um, you know, stern approach and prevent the migration from happening? And Deepak said, of course, compassion. You know, he gave kind of the pat answer. And then Satguru just smiled and he goes, you know what? I would just stop investing in conflict. (laughs) Good answer. Hey, wow. Right. He's like, stop investing in conflict. He goes, those people are getting their bullets from somewhere. Stop making the bullets stop selling them the bullets yeah wow got it anyways i went off on a little tangent there but you know it's just from one warrior to another speaking to our guests here war is screwed up and conflict is screwed up and this is coming from a navy seal and an australian you know special tactics sniper right it's it's messed up we got to figure out how to stop it anyways i'm off my soapbox sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) So you learned a lot about that and you wanted, I, I, I sensed that when you said about coming back from war and you're kind of lost and you need a purpose. And that's what a lot of, a lot of guys and girls who are suffering from post, you know, war stress are, are lost, right? They lose their sense of purpose. You found yours though. So tell us about how you found your purpose in regards to training people to, you know, to basically take back the parks and to, you know, kill this poaching stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, after Iraq, I left Iraq and then 2008, I went to South America, man, and just to decompress and spent 11 months there doing far too much drugs and alcohol and fucking hit rock bottom, man. Uh, And, uh, you know, rock bottom and at at a set of crossroads, you know, and I'd heard Mm -hmm. about anti-poaching about a decade before, hey, and it sounded like a, a bit of a, a romantic adventure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was one of the lucky ones, you know, I got shot back out the other side, um, got on a plane and, and uh, you know, I literally, when I left for Africa, it was a one-way ticket. I had my, really? my boots and, and a carry-on backpack. And uh, so I, I didn't join the military to serve my country. I did it for adventure. Uh, I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't um, go to Iraq to help the situation. I did it to make money. I, I didn't, uh, I suppose I didn't arrive in Africa looking for a cause. I went looking for a fight. Wow, interesting. And, and there was a couple of things there that, that changed my life. One was seeing rangers. You know, these are people that leave their family behind for up to 11 months of the year to be out there out there doing something, you know, greater than oneself. You know, I'd come from a world where we're defending, you know, resources in the ground and, and dot, dotted lines on a map and had mm-hmm. all the resources I needed in the world, man, and, and a huge paycheck to go with it. And here's these guys defending the heart and lungs of the planet. 
uh, away from their family in a hostile area where the biggest threat wasn't so much the poachers they're trying to stop, but the actual the animals they're trying to protect. And I thought that was <laughs> wow. it made me reflect, man, and it made me feel like shit actually to think that I was there trying to have an adventure on the back of their hard work. And uh, the, the second thing I saw was was animals, you know, and, and you'll know as well as anyone, man, when 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 you get going to a, a a combat situation in, in, in places like Iraq, it's a two-way street when those bullets are flying. And uh, with animals, what I saw over there was – it wasn't, man. It was just – it was a, an unjust action where animals yeah. you know, being killed. And that that affected me in a way that probably wouldn't have affected me at all a decade before. But, you know, Iraq has a way of, of breaking down some of those barriers and giving you a, a different lens to look at the world through. And, uh, you know, just seeing, seeing what was happening to animals. Animals don't want a car, a paycheck, a a bigger house or they, they don't have egos like us animals want one thing that they, they want to live and we mm-hmm. as a species continually take that away from them so you know that was that was enough for me to say you know fuck it I, i'd done all right through real estate uh and i had a shitty set of skills so you know sell up and, and set up and and 2009 we set up the the international anti-poaching foundation uh that's almost mm-hmm. a decade ago registered in four countries now operating through Southern and uh, and East Africa, the ranges we've supported help protect over five million acres of of wilderness every day. Millions of animals that uh, of all different shapes and sizes that live there. That's incredible. So five, what, I mean, that's pretty big chunk of land. Compare that to like a state in the United States. How big is that? Oh, jeez, man, I don't know. That's uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's bigger than the local <laughs> golf course. It's um, it's a it's a chunk of change, eh? Hey? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, let's back up a little bit. What is, you know, what is the nature of poaching? Like why people poach for trophies, they poach for money. What, what is the whole thing? Um, you've got different types of poaching. You've got subsistence poaching. That's people trying to you know, put food on the table genuinely. And then commercial poaching, uh, commercial right. poaching uh, from ivory uh, coming from elephants and, and horn coming from rhino. Are the two sort of the you know, the key targets there, and the, and those two animals are the most aggressively targeted species mm. because of the, the the value and thirty five thousand US dollars a pound for rhino horn on the black markets in in China and Vietnam, and one one rhino can easily have twenty or thirty pounds. So these things should wow. be actually locked up in safes, not running around in in areas the size of small countries. Mm. Uh, so when we set the organisation up, it was designed to be a uh, uh, a surgical instrument to go to the uh, you know, the, the, the front lines and protect these animals mm-hmm. in their natural environment. Uh, you know, the same as special operations, small groups of guys getting shitty jobs done in big places with, uh, with, yeah. um, with minimal So, so you, your idea initially was to send tactical teams out and basically counter poach. Yeah. Go after the guy. Go after the poachers. Would you actually kill them, or you just try to round them up and get them arrested? No, look, we, we try and round them up, and well, not only. I mean, individually going after these these, these guys i'll say guys because it's, it's mostly mostly men doing the poaching right. but uh you know training local forces uh and then, you know it's one thing i see with these rangers I, you know the people people keep looking at, at all these fancy solutions to to deal with wildlife crime whether it's drones or uh, fancy bits of software or, or lenses they're going to see over the horizon the most valuable asset on that continent uh, are its people and uh, yes, ninety percent, ninety percent of of getting the job done over there is just making sure you've got well motivated uh, and well led teams in the field. And the difference between success and failure in, in many of these operations is usually just one good commander uh, who can pass on all the skills and, and most importantly spend time with them. And we saw that very early and, and set out uh, just just training and, and running operations. Grew as an organisation, 
learnt a lot. Learnt a lot from um, you know the lessons I took away from Iraq. You know, mm-hmm. and, and just trying to trying to trying to you know always. I, I think life is like nature. It's it's evolution. You're continually mm-hmm. cutting away the parts that don't work and keeping the bits that do, and 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 pushing on, trying new things, and and not being afraid of making mistakes. And look, we, we've made some monumental fuck ups in the years, but uh, you know mm-hmm. we, we made them. We were prepared to make them, but we were right. prepared to grow after them. Yeah, right. That's awesome. Fascinating. Now, I know you appreciate some soreness brought on by getting busy with a bruising workout, but doesn't it suck when excessive soreness throws us off our game, causing us to back down on our effort, or even erasing those hard-won gains? That is why building recovery into our training plan is so important. Now, one way that I do that is with a simple-to-use recovery and healing tool called PowerDot. PowerDot is an electrical muscle stimulation device that forces type 2 muscle contractions, allowing you to increase muscle performance, speed up recovery, and also find a deeper mind-body connection. I've used complicated stim devices in the past to heal from my back injuries, but those were clumsy devices and not very effective to use for everyday use. The PowerDot, however, is a game-changer. Because of its simplicity and the control through a well-designed mobile app, it's portable and powerful, making it usable for daily recovery or as needed for excessive soreness and to ward off potential overtraining injuries. PowerDot puts professional-level physical therapy into your gritty hands, saving valuable time and money. Now, the PowerDot team loves us at SealFit and Unbeatable Mind, and they have a generous offer for us. You can get 25% off the device when you go to PowerDot.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-D-O-T.com. And use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND, at the checkout. So again, receive 25% off of one of my favorite tools for achieving increased muscle performance and recovery by going to PowerDot.com and using that code UNBEATABLEMIND. Hoo-yah. So... What impact is it having? Do you have any way to measure it? So, so far? the biggest project we'd run to date, so Kruger National Park in South Africa is home to around a third of the world's rhino population. Uh, and mm-hmm. most of those rhinos are in the southern quarter of Kruger National Park. Kruger uh, in South Africa shares a border with Mozambique. Mm-hmm. And I think it's around 2015. So you've, got, you've got about 80% of the people that are doing the poaching are coming across the border from Mozambique into South Africa, into Kruger, and into the heart of the, the biggest rhino population in the world. Mm-hmm. There's around 400 organizations specializing in rhino conservation in South Africa, but mm-hmm. none were working on the piece of land that was up against the South African border on Mozambique soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, the piece of land that separated most of the world's rhino and most of the world's rhino poachers was the most critical piece of land on the planet for, for rhino conservation. Mm-hmm. seven or eight years into a losing war. Um, so we went in there and set up a ground-level offensive. It involved 165 personnel, four different government departments, big offences, more guns, helicopters, planes, and it was a, essentially a, a ground-level uh, insurgency that we were fighting against the local population. Mm. Uh, had a team of, of you know, primarily white instructors uh, that were over there leading, leading local Indigenous forces. And, uh, you know, we, we were literally at war with the local population there. And that, that was a – I mean, the, the, we stopped poachers coming through that area into southern Kruger National Park. And that led to 
Uh, and those those poachers were subsistence poachers. No, these are, like. these are commercial poachers poaching for rhino horn, making significant oh, really? amounts of money, significant amounts of money, uh, driving mm-hmm. around in brand new cars, living in big houses, and uh, we stopped poachers from coming through there, and that that uh, that helped Kruger uh, uh, um, deploy their forces to their western boundary, and collectively it led to a downturn in rhino poaching locally. Which led to the uh, the first downturn in, in rhino poaching figures globally for the, uh, the first time in a decade. The wow. program was a success, but it was a failure because mm. it, ultimately the communities in Africa will decide the future of its its uh, its wilderness areas. Right, right, we were at war with the local community. Same with the Rockland. We're, we're at war. You know? So the local community were were involved in the poaching, and and just doing one operation to stop it wasn't going to change the the basic underlying needs that they had right to, yeah, to earn yeah. money and the, the economic conditions didn't change so yeah you know, not not only that but you know people's husbands and sons and uncles coming home in body bags uh, uh-huh. you know the the whole operation uh down there you know there's they say there's been over 400 400 people from those uh communities killed uh wow during mm-hmm. those counter poaching operations so it was um Okay, drove drove a downturn in, in rhino poaching, but it's not the answer, man. It actually made, it made made us try and think outside the box, you know, and, right. and try something new. And one of the programs now, I think, is you know, will define the future of conservation as as we know it. Is that the Akashinga program, or is yeah? That so I mean, we yeah. you know we actually reading a, I think it was a New York Times reading an article there about the first group of female U.S. Rangers to come through the ranks. So, you know, we looked at it and conservation is a male-dominated industry. Uh, the ratio of men to women on the front lines is around 100 to 1. And, uh, and so we're looking around at other industries and, and, and in particular the U.S. military, we're seeing women come through the ranks right. and reading more and more about uh, how the empowerment of women is the single greatest force for positive change in the world today. And I thought, well, if, if women aren't getting exposure at ground level, to the experience that they need to rise up through the ranks and, and genuinely fulfill management positions with the background experience to make proper operational decisions up the rest, then, then you know, if, if, women, if, if women can't progress in conservation, then can conservation progress when the rest of the world seems to be moving along? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we set out to, to, to build a, a team of all females to, uh, as an anti-poaching unit, and we tried and mm-hmm. we tried and we tro- tried and we couldn't. We couldn't find we couldn't find a reserve that would accept them uh, or accept hmm. us uh, to trial this. What everyone perceived to be such a huge risk. You mean you couldn't find an existing conservation unit from any of the countries involved? Is that we what you're saying? Anyone. We couldn't yeah. find wow. any, any any that would that were willing to allow us to test this model. I see. And then we eventually found an abandoned hunting reserve, trophy hunting reserve. Now, just to give some context, there, trophy hunting. Trophy hunting is a, is a dying industry. Trophy hunting is where people from overseas come over and they'll shoot an elephant or a lion right. or a rhino. Yeah. F- Facebook has helped kill that off, right? Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it, it, it has. So activism, uh, largely driven from the Western world, right. uh, reduce wildlife populations and then tougher laws and, and penalties around the import and export of, of certain trophies, such as ivory from countries like Zimbabwe to the US, uh, right. which again is a, is a function of, uh, of activism. So that what 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 that means is that there's an area collectively the size of France across Africa that is being set aside for trophy hunting, and in just Zimbabwe alone, where I live, 
20% of the landmass of that country is set aside for trophy hunting. So, we're By tra- the government, you mean? Or is it privately owned? A, a, a collection of the two. Um, okay. And so where trophy hunting has been used as an, as, a, as an economic model to fund anti-poaching units in the past as it dies off, the pieces of land that have been set aside for trophy hunting have no protection. And these, these pieces of land... And look, I, I don't like trophy hunting, and what I hate more about it is is the fact that we have ethically uh, uh, there's been enough momentum around the world to ethically maintain it as an as an industry to fund conservation. Uh, right, but now yeah. that these areas are dying off, all the all the hunters that call themselves conservationists, uh, they they're not hanging around. They move on to the next area where there's still something left to shoot, and right. people like us have to pick up the pick up the pieces. Right. And so we we moved into this area uh, in August last year. And we did selection for – we started with 87 women and we did pre-selection. Uh, pre-selection, just interview process. Uh, mm-hmm. Get it down to around 36. Uh, I did selection for 189 men in 2012. Uh, and at the end of day one, we had uh, three left. And <laughs> three, that, three that was suitable. So we, we, did, wow. uh, we, did, we did selection for these women. We started uh, and largely modeled on – the sort of torture we'd been in, you know too well of being exposed uh, coming through special operations and uh, right. being exposed to the, the the pillars of misery being cold tired hungry and wet and right. uh, <laughs> and uh, we started selection with with 37 women and at the end of 72 hours only three had voluntarily pulled off and huh. we, knew, we knew we had That's something incredible. very special you know the distance right. Distance one places between uh, suffering and breaking is what I think defines the spirit of an individual and it's mm-hmm. spirit we need. I can train the rest. I need spirit. Mm-hmm. I need character. And these women had it. And so we, we used a small team of former special operations instructors and we put these women through hell and they impressed us at, at every turn. And uh, they went operational in October last year and have just absolutely shifted my mindset on, on how conservation should be approached Historically, when we build a unit, an anti-poaching unit, we would recruit from around the country and form a unit to protect these nature preserves from which the local population has at some point in history been forcibly pushed off to create that area. So there's already tension. Uh, And then you bring in an external force and uh, so they're not influenced by the local uh, population that they may have grown up with. Now, women, women don't seem corruptible. We haven't seen any instance of corruption uh, wow. in the African context, which means we can recruit 100% from the local community. Mm-hmm. If we recruit 100% from the local community, it means that the largest line item we would spend in conservation, which is law enforcement, it means that now becomes a community investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're currently spending around $0.62 cents, uh, from every dollar operationally that, that we, we invest goes back into the community and it doesn't go in at, at government level doesn't go in at the chief level it goes in you mean the, the pay that these women get goes back into their local communities because they're they're yeah. going to spend it there right? pay or er- everything we can get from the local community we purchase from the local community and uh-huh. the, the salary of, of these women is 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 hitting the community at household level and in the hands of women so at, at face value we currently have more money going into that community every 34 days than what trophy hunting was providing uh, per annum. And that money was going in the government, right, and then trickling down. Previously, yes, yes, a local mm. council. Um, here it's going into the hands of women, and where you know, research tells us that women spend three times more of their salary on, on family and local community than what men do. So 
uh, around 90% of what they, they earn, they invest back into their local community. So we essentially, we essentially took the conservation dollar and turned it into a community investment by switching the strategy and right. female empowerment at the top of the strategy. That gives us the greatest um, bang for buck effectiveness and efficiency in community development, and the byproduct of that becomes conservation. And we have the that's incredible. Well, I mean, let's just stop there because that, that model that model is so powerful. I mean, it could be used for multiple different projects. I can imagine not just you know yeah. con- conservation. Well, it, it, it de-escalates everything. You know, with counterinsurgency yeah. for us means countering insurgents. Uh, women want to have a conversation. They want to know what the problem is and they want to fix it, uh, right. not shoot it. And uh, right. yeah, there's a, that's a big difference. And as we de- de-escalate in a law enforcement environment, it means it's a less militarized approach and a less militarized it's, approach is a cheaper one. So we don't- It's like Sadhguru said, stop investing in conflict, start yeah. investing right. in- conservation or the community yeah and it, you know what it's it's shifted almost two decades of military law enforcement and conservation thinking for me and uh yeah i think it- and, and it doesn't mean you're not training I mean, you're, you're still training these women how to shoot and how to do tactics and i saw the picture of one of your trainees she looks like a navy seal sniper you know yeah man i trained you're it. still training them to do that but that's not their their inclination isn't to lead with the weapon, but with the open hand. Yeah, I mean, we, we hope for the uh, the best and prepare for the worst. Uh, these right. women are trained in uh, in all the tactics they need to be moving through. An, I mean, the ecosystem, the Lower Zambezi, one of the largest elephant populations left on the continent, has had around 8,000 elephants killed in there in the last 16 years. That's 8,000 teams of armed men moving through there, uh, right. willing to kill rangers or willing to kill animals. And you know, we... We have to prepare them uh, for, for that. But they have made 62 arrests since October, and these are not just low-level arrests. These are, these are people involved with varying levels of uh, within syndicates, and all of those arrests have been made uh, without a shot being fired, uh, actually. Wow. It's, wow. Um, now, women, women, women f- are the inform- or they form the, the informal communications networks in, in rural society. That's a polite way of saying gossip, but they, they are actually plugged into – they plugged right. into absolutely everything that's going on there. And I think around it's around 3% of crimes that are solved are solved by catching people in the act. And the rest that are solved are solved through intelligence-led operations. And uh, Yeah, I could see that. They're like probably ter- terrific uh, spies. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, they're so plugged into the community. The community's on sides with what we're doing. It's much easier to take a phone call or a text message from someone in the local community telling you about where a problem is than it is to walk around a million acres looking for one. And, uh, yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, it's just really, I mean, the, the information that, uh, that they are receiving and processing and acting on is, uh, is, is you know, resulting in huge success. Hey, folks. I want to tell you about a product developed by a friend of mine, Navy SEAL Dr. Kirk Parsley. It's called the Sleep Remedy. I tried it recently during my Unbeatable Minds Summit, and boy, this stuff works. I can't say enough good things about it. I fell asleep quickly, didn't wake up feeling groggy, and uh, man, I I was like rock and roll the next day. Doc Parsley designed this to help Navy SEAL teammates back in 2009. They had been coming to him, and they were having a huge problem with sleep. And and this is not just SEALs and Spec Ops that have this problem. It's everybody (laughs) or many people, I should say, who are hyper-successful. So he concocted these things from things that are normally 
associated with developing, you know, or the, the chemicals that are in your brain that, that help facilitate sleep. And so he pulled them together and now he's put it all into one, you know, powder-based product. It's been hugely successful. He's been on the market now for a little while. And, you know, what he said in his talk to us was that everything is degraded when you don't sleep. Your emotions, um, your emotional balance, your decision-making, problem-solving, your impulse control, willpower, they're all degraded because these are all controlled by your prefrontal cortex. And it gets impaired by up to 30% with one single night of sleep where you're deprived. And then furthermore, all of your hormones, testosterone, growth hormone, and uh, they all decrease, the production of those decrease by also up to 30% with just a single night of sleep where you're deprived. And it probably could be just a limited, you know, just an hour off. Doc Parsley's sleep remedy designed to concentrate the most important nutrients that you need when you're preparing to go to sleep. It is drug-free. It's a nutritional supplement. And thousands of people, like I said, have tried it. First responders, Navy SEALs, athletes, CEOs, and they all find that it's very useful. Uh, if you're interested in trying it, there's an unlimited, no questions asked, money back guarantee. And you can get 10% off by entering the code UNBEATABLEMIND when you order it at DocParsley, D-O-C-P-A-R-S-L-E-Y.com. So enter UNBEATABLEMIND in the coupon code box at DocParsley.com. I recommend you check it out. Yeah. So what does it cost to train up a unit or, you know, a class of these? Uh, by the way, that, that word, um, what is it again? Akashinga? Akashinga. Yeah, it's a local Shona name that the women came up with for themselves. And it translates into, into the brave ones. So when we the did recruitment, ones. when we said we we're going to do recruitment of this unit, I'm an Aussie, so, you know, we're always battling for the underdog, hey? So... We thought, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna recruit these women, let's give the ones that are the the most oppressed an opportunity. And right. uh, and so the re- recruitment was open to uh, victims of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, uh, AIDS orphans, single wives, abandoned mothers, and wow. uh, uh, you know, give give them. There's been no handouts on this course. They had an opportunity, and they made the most of it. Uh, the one. I mean, how how do you recruit from? Like, do you put a poster up and say, "Hey, if you've been sexually assaulted, you know, we want to talk to you." No, I can't imagine that working. No, it's um, Bush Telegraph, eh? you know, very tight knit communities, yeah. eh? different villages. Everyone knows everyone's business, and uh, and uh, you know, we went and spoke with the chief and said, "This is what we want to do." And uh, you know, they're skeptical at first. You know, mm. this is perceived to be a man's job in a, in a male dominated culture, and right. uh, uh, you know, we managed to convince them, and and they were very good in helping uh, helping us, you know, open up that opportunity to the right people there, and. Uh, Nobody's disappointed, hey? That's that's amazing. So, how many? So, do you run a class to you know of recruits every year now, or how, how's this kind of uh, growing? Yeah. And so, back to the question before. Um, so, we we currently have around forty people in the program. It costs us around five thousand eight hundred dollars per annum to recruit, train, equip, and deploy these women uh, onto the front lines. Is that per head or for the whole class? Per head, yeah, per head. Okay, yeah. That's and, uh, we, we, we have the first model now, which is refining. We're essentially turning this into a best practice model, uh, which, you know, we, we're measuring across five different sections and, and 67 parameters uh, so we can understand from a scientific base what we're, what we're doing and how to improve it. The second reserve will start in, uh, in Kenya early next year, 
and mm-hmm. uh, and once we have it running and functioning and succeeding in a third reserve, we'll then make all the doctrine available for free to other organizations that agree to meet standards. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, open source it, huh? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, so it's absolutely amazing to watch, man. That is fascinating. I think I see a, a note from um, my producer, Allison, that BBC did a, a documentary or some sort of uh, profile on the women. Yeah, BBC did a uh, a short piece, uh, went out, well, two different pieces actually, one for world news and one for, for social media. I, mean, I know the social media one's been seen over 11 million times now. So you're yeah, wow. getting a lot of traction. Uh, a lot of people are starting to sit up and take notice of of, of the program from, you know, and I, I think, you know, where the West has largely helped drive a downturn in trophy hunting, we now need to look at alternatives. And from an economic standpoint, this is an alternative. And I think... I think empowering women to protect these areas, uh, uplift their communities, support their families, and and protect wildlife is a much more sellable uh, market than trophy hunting. Right. What would someone search for on YouTube if they wanted to see that? that uh, I mean, research? if if they go to our website, if you just Google anti poaching, we'll pop up there somewhere uh, somewhere around the top. Uh, the International Anti Poaching Foundation. Uh, okay. IAPF.org, India Alpha Papa Foxtrot.org, uh, or you can get on BBC and type Akashinga, A K A S H I N G A. Yeah, we're going to add a few hundred thousand to that 11 million. <laughs> I want to check it out myself. So, what's your ultimate vision, you know, for not just for, you know, the work that you're doing, but for the world? I mean, how do you, when you wake up every day, what's your What's your mindset about the future? And you know, when, I, when I sit down at the, at the end of it all, and uh, on, on the porch there somewhere in the rocking chair, I just want to look back and, and help. And I know that I helped play uh, a part in building teams that that uh, were able to protect as, as much of the natural world as possible. Uh, you right. know, you've got this amazing planet, oh, these rocks spinning through space, and and. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep looking for miracles when, in actual fact, it's all around us in nature. You know, and uh, right. and I think just just uh, just protecting it. You know, we don't need to try and protect any one specific species. Just give nature a chance to do its thing, and and it'll hallelujah a billion times yeah. over, man. Yeah, couldn't agree more. You know, and and, and I, what I love about what you're doing is, you know, protecting the environment, Mother Earth, and everything, but also empowering women who are the protectors, right? And so I. Yeah. It's such a virtuous uh, loop that you're creating. Yeah, I think it's, it's a fantastic model. Yeah, it's, and you know we're not a we're not necessarily a female empowerment organization. We're a conservation organization. We just we just found a, a better way to do our job. You know, for us, we we, we do this because it makes business sense. And I think uh, you know that's that will appeal to a lot of people who who value the bottom line. And uh, you know, we we have mm-hmm. to try and make our dollar go further and further. And and uh, you know, I, I need to keep finding new ways to protect protect nature and protect animals man yeah. that's my thing is there any is there any technology leverage uh, here down the road you know through like blockchain or micropayments or you know mobile bitcoin or you know what i mean Th- that you could bring into this model that could erase some friction yeah so we've got um we do some blockchain uh we do some uh, crypto mining um part okay. with a, a third party company in australia Get the electricity donated for free through a solar farm, and we got uh, we got mining machines turning, you know, and that's a that's a commercial plug-in uh, to the overall model. 
huh, cool. that, that we are running. It doesn't cover large chunks of our budget, but um, right. you know it covers some of it. You know, and that's the other thing with this model too. There's two and a half times more funding for female empowerment in Africa than there is for conservation. Uh, hmm. Because we're an economic alternative to trophy hunting, uh, we open ourselves up to animal rights funding, which is a, is a lot of money in the animal rights world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the entire program is, is plant based. The women are all vegan. So uh, no kidding, I can miss that. Oh wow! Chunk of the funding we get is from uh, is from people in the plant based, the vegan world. Is that a require? That's a requirement to to be part of the unit. So the the program is vegan. What the women do back in their own homes is up to them. But we have a we have a, a, a a component within Akashinga called Back to Black Roots, and that's mm-hmm. focusing on the, the history of African food and what people were raised on there, uh, where meat was traditionally reserved for ceremonial uh, purposes only. And, uh, really? Yeah, people were raised on a plant-based diet, and it's been Western influence that's driven a, a largely meat-based diet. You're seeing really? A lot of problems with diabetes and heart disease in in, um, in the local communities, and uh and you know, in, in water stressed places like southern and east Africa, it takes forty eight times more water to produce a kilogram of beef than it does to produce a kilogram of vegetables. Uh, yes, we're teaching. That. It's yeah. a four step program. We teach the people, all our staff, how to cook and prepare and grow uh, nutritious uh, fruit and vegetables, and how to speak from an environmental uh, and ethical and uh, nutritious standpoint. And then we teach mm-hmm. their families, and then we teach their communities, and then we create ambassadors. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. You have, you know, obviously through trial and error, through facing challenge and risk and overcoming failure and, you know, falling down seven times, getting up eight, you've obviously learned a lot through that process and, um, you know, uh, probably have some wisdom. You may not consider it that, you know, but I would. So what, you know, what would you share with our, um, our listeners, uh, like, like, you know, two or three like really important things that you want them to um, to think about, consider, to you yeah. know, maybe, you know. I, I think you know, what, what's helped me the most, and, and and I've seen it too with other veterans that have come over, uh, what's helped me the most is not trying to help myself but to do something for others, uh, whether it right. be humbles or whether it be other people. And uh, just, just that single act alone helps the individual so much so much more than you can if you just focus on yourself so focus right. focusing positive energy outwards rather than trying to fix inwards has, has always been mm-hmm. something that's worked for me uh, and above all else you know, have integrity be honest uh, do what's right uh, you don't need to follow the crowd man do what your heart tells you and what your gut tells mm-hmm. you because it's, it's often the it's uh it's most often the you know the the, the truth that sets us free yeah hallelujah I love that. So focusing on others, be honest and do what your heart says. That's some very, very good advice. One other quote that I wrote down, uh, which I absolutely love is, you know, the gap or the difference between suffering and breaking defines the person and your spirit exists in that gap. Yeah. Yeah, man. That is awesome. So you've already given us the website of the international anti-poaching, is it? foundation iapf how else can people or i should not how else but how can uh listeners who are moved by this you know by some of the things you're working on support you uh i mean we i mean obviously we function through uh donations from around the world people that that want to invest uh in what we're doing people that unlike trophy hunters need to hang something on the wall uh to, to to show where they've been 
we want people that just need to know that they've done something good at the end of the day. So anyone that does want to donate or give, please go onto the website and mm-hmm. uh, hit the donate button uh, and, and just just learn learn about uh, wildlife conservation. Uh, learn about why the program's plant based as well. You know, we we have to run around in the bush with guns to protect animals. Uh, the easiest way to protect them is not to stick them in your mouth. And uh, to eat them. Hell yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> we, can do, we can get a lot of a lot of self healing uh, when we stop inflicting harm on on others, and, and and animals fall into that bracket. So yeah, just have a think about how we live our own lives and how we can help others. Oh yeah. Awesome, Damien. Well, it's been an honor to chat with you. Thanks very much for uh, for what you're doing. Thank um, you, if I can help you out in any way, uh, please don't hesitate to ask and look me up if you ever get to San Diego. Cool, man. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Hoo-yah. Cheers, brother. Really nice to meet you. All right, folks. That was amazing. I mean, wow. Um, Damien Mander, check out the International Anti-Poaching Foundation website. Go donate, figure out how to support him and support these women and support the animals. I mean, there's not a single thing that he said that I don't 100% agree with. I'm not 100% vegan, but I've been moving more and more toward whole food, ketogenic diet and less and less meat. My yogi in spirit tells me that that's the way to go, uh, both for health reasons, but also, you know, environmental and economical. It's the right thing. So, um, yeah, a lot to think about there. So enough for today. Um, thanks for listening. Stay focused. Do the work every day. Focus on others. Be honest and follow your heart and find that gap between suffering and breaking. <laughs> awesome stuff. All right, folks. Till next time. Divine out. Hoo-yah. Boys, time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UTT. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio.